last Sunday, but uh, just a brief word about the uh, historical context in the life of our Lord here in verses 41 through 44 of Luke chapter 19. Um, the scene before us marks what we commonly refer to as our Lord's triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. Uh, he is making his last public entrance into the city of Jerusalem. He's riding on the back of a colt, and this is in explicit fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. And so I want to read these verses in our hearing. Luke chapter 19, verses 41 through 44. Now as he, speaking of our Lord Jesus, drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower thereof falls away, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. As I pray, would you pray as well for the ministry of the word this evening? Let us pray. Great God of heaven, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we bow in your presence, our triune God. And Father, as we are once again given the inestimable privilege of holding your word in our hands and having its truth set before our minds and our hearts, we cry out to you as humbly as we know how for the gracious assistance of your Holy Spirit that you would send him upon preacher and people alike. And Father, that you would speak to us from your word and that, Father, we would receive your word gladly and that it would be the norm that would form our lives more to the likeness of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. When God in Christ pays a visit... Well, these words of our Lord Jesus Christ are very interesting words. They are words that come to us with the overtones of warning and also that of mercy. You'll notice that when our Lord came, he comes expressing uh, his sorrow over the city of Jerusalem at the lack of their impenitence, at their unbelief in him. And so he brings this charge upon the nation that they did not know the time of their visitation. And so last time we were seeking to answer the question, what is a time or a day of visitation? And then we began to answer a second question, how may we recognize such a time, a day, or a season of God's visitation to us? Just let me touch upon a day of visitation once again, it's interesting that when you read the comments of old J.C. Ryle upon this passage, as I read last time, he said, 
this about a time of visitation. He says, there seems to be no doubt that churches, nations, and even individuals are sometimes visited with special manifestations of God's presence. And their neglect of such manifestations is the turning point in their spiritual ruin. Why this should take place in some cases and not in others, we cannot tell. Facts, plain facts in plain history and biography appear to prove that it is so. The last day, he writes, will show that the world, that there were seasons in the lives of many who died in sin when God drew very near to them, when conscience was peculiarly alive, when there seemed to be but a step between them and salvation, those seasons, Ryle says, will probably prove to have been what our Lord calls their day of visitation. Now what was the day of visitation for Jerusalem? And it was on account of this, their, their lack of impenitence, their refusal to embrace the overtures of his mercy, the blessings in Christ. Jesus wept over this city and pronounced judgments against them because they did not recognize their time of visitation. Well, in the case of Jerusalem, it is clear what their time of visitation was. It culminated in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. His presence there, the most wonderful sermons ever had been preached, were preached to these people. The most wonderful miracles ever performed. And yet the inhabitants of Jerusalem failed to respond to the overtures of God's mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so for a day of visitation for Jerusalem... It was those unusual privileges and blessings that were proffered in the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. What is a day of visitation for us? Well, my friend, that is a day when God draws near to you with unusual spiritual pressures and influences. And for men to fail to recognize it is to seal themselves up to this terrible judgment that Israel experienced as we saw Herod experienced, as we're going to see tonight that Felix experienced, and as we read of in the first chapter of Proverbs 1. And so then, if God sends us such times of visitation in the course of our lives, then it's very important for us to know how to recognize such a time of visitation. I suggested at the close of last Lord's Day evening that there are some four things that I think will characterize a time of God's visitation to individuals. Some of these will be more individualistic. Some of them will be more corporate or collective. But I believe that the principles apply in each case. Last time we saw that the first The first way to recognize a time of visitation is when you find that the Word of God is coming to you with unusual power. We saw that the mark of the ministries of both John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus Christ was that they preached with power. That there were people just flocked to hear them. It's amazing how they were brought out. 
You read in the Gospel of Mark, for example, Jesus enters a house and immediately the house is overrun with people so that people could not even draw near to the door of such a house. Why is it? It's because our Lord Jesus preached with such power and people were drawn within the orbit of our Lord's preaching. Now then, when the word comes with unusual power, that is a time of God's visitation. Now I want to pick up where I left off last Lord's Day evening at this point. What then secondly is a sign of God's visitation? I would suggest this. When conscience, when conscience begins to speak with unusual clarity and volume, make no mistake, that is a time of God's visitation. That little moral monitor in the soul, conscience, that little moral arbiter that cries fair or foul, inbounds, out of bounds, right or wrong, that pesky little fellow whom we try to squelch and stifle. But no man is ever saved until conscience is awakened to need, to guilt, to the crime of sin. And so when conscience wakes up and begins to speak with clarity and begins to point out our sins, when he begins to speak with a volume that is almost deafening, a volume that follows us into the classroom, into the place of work, into the bedroom, into the wee hours of the morning, just before we drift off to sleep, when conscience begins to awake from his slumber and speaks clearly and powerfully, this is indeed a time of God's visitation to our souls. In Holy Scripture, there's the record of a man, an individual who had such a visitation from God. You see it in the nation of Israel. And it would be interesting for us to trace out these principles in the Gospels. Remember Jesus said in John chapter 15 and verse 22, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now that I've come, there's no cloak, no excuse. Now what did our Lord Jesus mean by that? That they were not sinners before He came? No, they were sinners. But Christ is declaring, as it were, my presence has tuned up conscience voice. He has clarified conscience voice. No silence now. There's that time in John 8 that we read about where our Lord Jesus writes with his finger on the ground and conscience thunders and all the accusers turn and walk away. You can trace this sort of thing throughout the ministry of Christ. You see it in Paul's ministry before that heathen potentate in Acts chapter 24 and verse 25. This man had a time of visitation and it came when he had this criminal, this captive before him. And the captive speaks to his captor. Verse 24 of Acts 24. And after some days when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, and of course this is not in scripture per se, but you find this in the history of the church. Even as Herod took his brother Philip's wife, Felix had taken Drusilla who had been the wife of another and he took her for his own. Doesn't say that in scripture, but we know it from history. 
his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Now as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, these are issues, you see, that cause conscience to wake up from his sleep. And conscience responds to an absolute standard of righteousness. Conscience is there as God's representative of that standard. And when a man begins the reason of righteousness, conscience recognizes that kind of language and he wakes up from his slumber and begins the thunder. Self-control, that is the relationship of that standard to my conduct in terms of my lust and my passions. Whoa, that is conscience hunting ground right there. And of the judgment to come, conscience is God's continual reminder that we'll stand in His presence even as we read of the heathen, as we've learned through the preaching through Romans. Romans 1, 32, who knowing the judgment of God... You see, Paul was right there in the hunting ground of conscience, right in the area where conscience does his work. And as Paul reasons of these things, Felix, as it were, just rears back and scratches his scraggly beard and says, well, all that's nice and good? No. Scripture says he was afraid. He was terrified. He trembled. Conscience thundered and conscience spoke clearly. And all the areas of his wheeling and dealing, his dishonesty, his crap, his immorality and all of his other sins, conscience thundered. Conscience gave him a preview of the day of judgment until he trembles. And what does he do? How does he respond? Does he say, oh, bless God for a time of visitation? Bless God that he's drawn near to me now in mercy? No, no. He says, get out of here. Leave me for now, Paul. Get out of here till it's the right time. I've got to get a little wine to tune down the volume of conscience. I need to indulge my appetites to take the edge off conscience. And this day of visitation comes and it goes. You know, I think it's important for young people sometimes, perhaps who are still unconverted. Has God ever used the influence of that godly father or mother Every time you see them walking in evangelical obedience to God's holy law, is conscience thundering to you saying, that's what you ought to be. Living before the presence of the converted wife or the converted husband, you, the unconverted spouse, does conscience thunder and speak to you, convicting you of your crimes against God when conscience does My friend, that is a time of visitation. God is giving, is visiting you with the overtures of His mercy. So when conscience speaks, or when the word comes with unusual power, secondly, when conscience speaks with unusual clarity and volume, and then thirdly, when the sense of the reality of spiritual truths or unusually vivid to you, that is a time of God's visitation. One of the marks of the unbelieving man in this world 
is that he is wedded to his senses, which in turn prevents him from serious contemplation of the world to come. He's like the man that interpreter shows the Christian in Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, or rather, I think it's Christina this time, not Christian, the, the second part. And the interpreter shows Christina in Bunyan's allegory, the man with the muckrake in his hand. Maybe you recall that. And here's the picture of this man. And he's just simply raking over the muck of this world. This is how Bunyan describes him. There stood also over his head with a celestial crown in his hand and proffered him that crown for his muckrake. In other words, here's the picture of God. He's looking down upon this man in mercy and he's offering him a crown in exchange for that rake in his hand. But the man did neither look up nor regard, but raked to himself the straws, the small sticks, and the dust of the floor. He's the picture of a man who is too preoccupied with this world and the concerns thereof ever to consider heaven above, let alone the incomparable glory of what the God of heaven has to offer in Jesus Christ. And being insensible of that other world of reality, he simply spends his life raking over the muck of this world. This is why the Apostle John commands us, as he does in his first epistle, do not love the world, nor the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, John says, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but of the world. The worldling is wedded, that is, he is bound to the realm of sense. All his concerns are with his appetites, what he can see and feel and touch and taste. But no man is ever saved until that other world which permeates our present physical world, that spiritual world which extends beyond this world and yet permeates it. No man is ever saved until that other world of spiritual reality is made real to him. As long as he's wedded to this world of sense, he's not going to become a Christian. But when he thinks about heaven, that's the true world. When he begins to contemplate sin and guilt and judgment, hell, the cross, salvation. You see, these are the things that belong to that other world of spiritual reality, just as real as this present temporal world. Because while this present world is, in the language of John, passing away, that other world is eternal and will continue forever. The Apostle Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 18, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Here are two worlds, one these two worlds intermingled and one of them is disfused through the other. And yet the man of this world lives as though this world is all that there is. 
such things as sin and guilt and God and Christ and heaven and hell. He lives as though these were no realities at all. But these are biblical realities nonetheless. And when does a man of this world become converted? It is when the light of biblical revelation begins to bring these matters to the forefront of his soul. And he begins to see them in the limelight of God's word. And he begins to adjust his life to the light of them. Again, these are matters before which the Roman governor Felix trembled. In Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress, it was when Graceless began to reflect seriously upon the realities of these that he was led to become Christian. You may recall his initial encounter with evangelist in Bunyan's allegory. Graceless had begun to cry, what must I do to be saved? When the evangelist began to approach him, he asked him, wherefore dost thou cry? In other words, why are you crying? To which Graceless replied, sir, I perceive by the book in my hand, the Bible that I am condemned to die and after that to come to judgment. And I find that I am not willing to do the first nor able to do the second. It was when these spiritual realities began to grip his soul that he was set on the path to his conversion. How may we recognize a time of visitation? It is whenever the sense of the reality of this spiritual world begins to come home to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And when men to begin, begin to give more than mere mental assent to the biblical doctrine of hell, but have begun to sense something of the horrible reality of that place, of its condition of divine retribution. So that's no longer simply a word or a concept in the mind, but it's real. That is a time of visitation. When the reality of that spiritual world comes home to them with unusual vividness. But I hasten then to the final way of recognizing a time of visitation. And that is when the provisions, the claims, the blessings of the Savior are unusually clear and winsome. What is salvation? Have you ever looked at it in light of all the ways that the Bible describes salvation? Well, the biblical imagery with respect to this doctrine is rich. And the Bible describes it under many figures. It is a multifaceted concept. But one of the most clear figures of salvation that the Bible offers us so clearly is that of the imagery of marriage. The Bible describes a Christian as one who is married to Jesus Christ. We read in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 7, But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. The Lord Jesus Christ speaks of him under the imagery of the heavenly bridegroom. Therefore, becoming a Christian is being courted and wooed by Christ and being brought by His grace to say, I do 
to the claims of Christ in order that you might become the recipient of all the wonderful blessings that He Himself is, has, and has provided as the heavenly bridegroom. But no woman, no woman ever says, says I do until there is a proposal made to her that she regards as serious. You see, some foolish man, foolish young man may just for his own personal kicks go up to some young lady and say, will you marry me? Well, she's not going. Well, at least I hope she wouldn't. To take such a proposal seriously. There's got to be some consciousness that there is a serious proposal being made. And it's when, when that's so, a young lady, if she doesn't reject the author immediately, she'll begin to contemplate all of the issues that are bound up in such a proposal. Am I prepared to give up my name? Am I prepared to give up my identity for this man? Am I willing to surrender my freedoms, submerge my ambitions, my interests, my goals to his? You see, those kind of issues and many more are involved in the contemplation of a committal to the marital relationship. But no girl, no girl to whom the suitor has become precious ever finds it difficult to say I do to such a proposal. Now if it's someone whose face she can't stand or whose whole demeanor and manner of life is unbecoming to her, she's not going to say I do to such a suitor unless, unless she's a complete loon or so desperate to have a Mrs. before her name or a ringer on her finger that she'll do anything to get them. Now then, the Lord Jesus Christ is the pure personification. He is the embodiment of all true spiritual beauty. He is the altogether lovely one. He is the fairest of 10,000. And the Lord Jesus Christ stands before us in the gospel. And I trust I say this reverently. The Lord Jesus stands before us in the gospel. And he says, will you be mine? Are you willing to give up your rights, your identity, to come under the gracious reign of my lordship? If so then I stand willing and able to confer upon you all of the benefits purchased by my own blood and I'll smother you with those blessings. Now granted, many people hear that invitation, their response is to look at Christ and to say, who are you to expect such from me? Give up my identity, my independence, Give up my aspirations and plans, not on your life. You see, dear folks, no man, no woman, no boy, no girl will ever become a Christian until Christ begins to become beautiful to behold. And all the beauty of who he is as the Son of God and in all the perfection of his life-giving, sin-bearing work on behalf of sinners and his claims begin to appear so reasonable to our souls. 
you're never going to say, I do the Christ, as long as you think him unworthy of that kind of unrivaled submission. You'll never embrace him as yours so long as you do not consider him worthy of your trust. In a time of visitation, the Holy Spirit illuminates the face of the Lord Jesus Christ as he revealed in the gospel, and he begins to appear so worthy of his claims. So when the provisions, the claims of the Savior, are unusually clear and winsome, this is a time of visitation. Now you see something of this illustrated, and I'll close with this biblical illustration. You see something of this in that well-known incident of which we read in the 10th chapter of Mark's gospel. You find it as well in the other two synoptic accounts, Matthew 19, Luke 19, but I, or Luke 18. But I want to focus upon the incident as we find it in Mark's gospel, the 10th chapter. And I'm underscoring Mark's account of the rich young ruler. Here was a man who had every reason to be nothing but a pure materialist. He was wealthy. He had great, uh, a great personal record concerning the commandments of God upon which to stand. He could confess to our Lord Jesus Christ, Teacher, all these things I have kept, I have observed from my youth. Here was a man whom one would expect to have a clear conscience before God, and yet he is beset with this one question, Good Master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? No doubt prior to this encounter with Christ, he had heard the news of this young rabbi who preached with such unusual powers and who performed such amazing miracles. And so when Jesus Christ comes into his area, and I read now from Mark 10, 17, now as he, the Lord Jesus, was going out on the road, one came running and knelt before him and asked him. He saw something unusually winsome about this teacher. And so he asked him, good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? You see, here is a man who is conscious that there is this other world of reality and that this world, this other world is an eternal world, another world of reality than this present material world. You see, these things are indications that this was a time of visitation for this man. They were in some measure being made real to him. And so Jesus begins to deal with him. And in verse 20, the man responds to our Lord's words, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him. The scripture says he loved him. And I believe that this is the same general compassion of Christ that we see him expressed, expressing over the city of Jerusalem in Luke 19, that general love and pity of God for all creatures of God who are made in His image. Nowhere do we ever read of God's love for fallen angels, but there is for fallen man. It says He loved him. And Christ says, one thing you lack. Go your way, sell whatever you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come, take up your cross and follow me. 
This man obviously sees something attractive about Christ that is winsome. And that he senses somehow that the ultimate question to life is bound up in this man. Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? But Jesus addresses him and says in essence, All right, young man, here's the issue. Sell whatever you have, give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And take up your cross and follow me. But we read, he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Yes, Christ was winsome to him. The world of spiritual reality had drawn near to this man. But the crutch of the issue was this. It wasn't real enough for the promise of eternal realities to make him willing to forsake his present material realities. Oh, Christ was real to him, but not real enough for him to forsake what he could see for the promise of what he could not see. And he refused to take Christ on his own terms. And as far as we know, this was his time of visitation. And it's a microscopic picture of the nation of Israel. As far as we know, judgment followed. No record that the Lord Jesus ran, ran down the road after this young man. No subsequent record of any repentance such as we do in the case of Nicodemus. So in answer to the question, how may we recognize a day or time of visitation? I would say it is this. It is such a day, time, or occasion, period, or season in your life individually or in the life of a church, a community, a nation, when the Word of God comes to us with unusual power, when conscience wakes up and begins to speak with unusual clarity and volume, when the sense of the reality of spiritual things become unusually vivid, and when the provisions and the claims of the Savior are unusually clear and winsome. Those are times of visitation. And I would say to anyone in our presence tonight who is unconverted, if you sense that any of these things are true of you, that God is dealing with your soul, you need to cry out to Christ. The scripture tells us from the prophet Isaiah in the 55th chapter, he says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon his name while he is near. And when is he near? He's near today. He may be far off tomorrow. As far as heaven is from hell. Embrace the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, we do indeed thank you for our precious Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, for the times when you came to us who are converted and you presented yourself to us in such a winsome manner. We thank you for the spirit of grace that convicted our souls of our sin. We thank you for that mighty work of yours in our hearts that you have brought us into the kingdom of your own beloved son and that you have filled our hearts with a love for the Savior. 
Oh God, if there are any among us tonight who are yet strangers to your grace, we cry out to, to you, O oh God, to the good of their souls, that you would draw them to yourself, that they may find mercy and forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Father, we thank you tonight for our time of food and fellowship. We thank you for them in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. For it is in his name and by whose merits we draw near to you with these your pleas, asking that you would bless our time together for his sake. Amen. Dear people of God, if you'd be so kind to rise for the benediction.